to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 14 through 18. John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. This is the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Truly, Lord, you are God most high. How wonderful it is this morning to be together, to sing your praises, to reflect on your coming, even on your works, on your death, your resurrection, and your ascension. Oh Lord, we know that while we consider the incarnation this time of the year, it certainly didn't end there. And it certainly didn't start there, as from eternity past, you planned to come in the fullness of time and lay down your life for your sheep. And we are humbled by that, Lord, this morning, recipients of your grace. Lord, we come before you and ask that you would help us this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth as you have designed and declared that we ought to. But Lord, we come before you this morning because you have changed our hearts and we want to. And we thank you for this opportunity to rejoice in you and to proclaim you. Father, we pray for other churches in our community. We lift up Shelter Baptist Church to you this morning and we ask that you would be with them and that you would uh, provide for their needs and that Lord, you would encourage them and Lord, that you would help them to reach their community in Crumpler. We thank you for what you're doing in and through them as a church, and we ask for your uh, strengthening hand uh, in their midst, Lord, that you would work in them and through them. Father, we pray for uh, other sister churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We lift up Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Worland, uh, Wyoming this morning, and Pastor Paul Thomas. Lord, we thank you for growing their church, and Lord, how you are steadily sanctifying your people and regularly adding to their number. We thank you for this grace to them. Lord, we pray that you would grant more men to serve as elders uh, with Pastor Thomas. Lord, we pray for more deacons as well, Lord, as this church continues to grow. Lord, that you would uh, bring men that have a heart for Christ and a heart for your sheep to serve in these, compa- these capacities and that they have the giftings to serve your body in that way. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide um, for them a meeting place, 
um, that they current rent, currently rent the facility that's being sold out from under them. We pray that a new owner would be gracious uh, to them and allow them to stay similar to what you have done for us, Lord. We pray the same for them, that you would uh, give them a place to worship and call their own. Father, we pray for one of their members named Donna, Lord, who recently lost unexpectedly her only son. And as she goes into um, this Christmas season, oh God, that you would um, just strengthen her relationship with you. Lord, um, she uh, just is, is having so much trouble with that in the fact that they were, had a strained relationship before he died. And so God, would you provide your comfort to sustain her and your grace, Lord, to comfort her uh, with your presence. So we just lift up Donna to you, Lord. Lord, we do ask that you would uh, also breed unity within Sovereign Grace Bible Church, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and growth uh, for the new people and ideas that they have in the new year, that, Lord, you would um, bring your grace and your strength and uh, give great wisdom to the elders. Father, we pray that um, you would just, just breed, again, sweet unity and purity in their fellowship, and that evangelistic zeal would um, exude from them, Lord, in the new year as they reach uh, those parts of northern Wyoming. Lord, we also lift up the persecuted church. We think specifically of Uzbekistan this morning, that you would uh, be with the saints there, that you would uphold them and strengthen them. God, that you would help them to stand faithful amidst persecution. God, you tell us to pray for the persecuted church and, Lord, to even uh, pray as if we were in chains with them. And so we pray fervently and boldly that you would deliver them and uh, make known your word uh, in those tribes, Lord, in Uzbekistan, that, Lord, many would come to know you. Father, we also lift up unreached uh, people in the world. God, let it always be before our minds that the, the task is not yet finished, that particularly in the Western world, we would do well to pray for those who do not yet have the gospel. And so we lift up the Bati people of Indonesia, Lord, that you would bring the gospel to them, that you would put it upon the hearts of uh, many, to, many that are raised up as missionaries to go to them and to translate the scriptures to them. And Lord, that you would provide great courage and exuberance to those that are willing to go. And that Lord, those churches that support them would fervently get behind them 100%. So Lord, we lift up those people to you this morning. God, other things that are on our mind, we think of the war continually in Ukraine, Thank you, the refugees that that has created, that you would be with them this day as they do not find a home and find uh, just this Christmas um, bitter. And Lord, that you would provide for them. Lord, we lift up the sick. Uh, even here in our own congregation, we continue to pray for uh, Mary Houck, Sarah Reed's mother. We lift up Dot and Ken Mundy, who have been sick this week. Father, for Ellie. Tucker, and others, Lord, that are sick and aren't able to be here, that you would be with them, and Lord, heal them and bring them back to us shortly. Father, we pray for those who are grieving, Lord, that you would be with them. Uh, we know that there are many that are not with us this Christmas that were in Christmas's past, and we ask that you would bind up our broken hearts, and Lord, that you would encourage those who have lost loved ones, that they would look to you, the one who will one day enable us through the resurrection to say hello once again to those who are in Christ. And so we look forward to what you will do. Father, we lift up 
those uh, mothers that are pregnant. We thank you for these babies in the womb. We ask that you would provide for them and encourage them, give them strength and endurance, Lord, that you would give them healthy pregnancies, and Lord, that there would be healthy deliveries. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the children that you've blessed this church with. We are humbled by these children. But Lord, would you help us to share the gospel with them and that, Lord, you'd bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift up Quinn and Rose as well, Lord, as they prepare for marriage in this next uh, few weeks, Lord, that you would uh, provide for them. Thank you for the time that they're able to spend uh, down in um, uh, Charlotte, Lord, and being able to be with Grace Fellowship again today, Lord, that you would just encourage um, them, Lord, and be with Grace Fellowship as they worship together this morning. Father, we thank you for um, Pastor Tim's good report this week. We thank you for all that you're doing in and through him, that you would strengthen him. Thank you for the group of Christ alone as they prepare in the next month to become uh, their very own church, Lord, as they form and constitute as a body, Lord, that you would encourage them, give strength and wisdom to all of us as we seek to see this church planted to your glory. Father, would you give us wisdom tomorrow as we meet uh, with uh, a realtor and pretend, a potential investor, Lord, concerning uh, a meeting place for this new church. Lord, would you give wisdom? And Lord, if you close doors, would we help, help us, Lord, to have an attitude of, of just humble reliance upon you and that you would show us where we ought to go and where we ought to meet? Uh, for Lord, we are yours, and we know you care about these things far more than we do. And so, Help us, we pray. Finally, Lord, as we turn to your word, would you be magnified in not just the preaching of it, but Lord, our obedience and our consideration of this glorious truth that you came in the flesh. And so help us now in these moments. Lord, hide us all behind the cross for you are worthy. And Lord, that you would uh, magnify your name. In Jesus' name, we pray these things, amen. Well, good morning. We have taken a break uh, the last few weeks to, uh, from Genesis. We'll return there after the first of the year, but we considered last week the preparation of the coming of the Messiah, and we considered that in the cultural and the religious and the spiritual and, and, and looking at eternity past and all that was prepared for Christ to come, and we considered the first five verses of John's gospel we're going to jump now here, as we've read here a few moments ago, to verse 14, and consider now the incarnation, and the next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the proclamation, because we are not to merely examine Christ and his coming, but we're to proclaim his coming, and ultimately his death and his resurrection. And so as we consider these things, we also, this time of the year, are no doubt preparing our own homes and our own gatherings. And of course, at this time of the year, we're wrapping gifts. And if you're like us, we have to keep those from little fingers. For those who have um, children at home, you know what that's like uh, to have to rewrap a gift. Uh, it's just natural to want to unwrap it, right? And we think about the anticipation, the excitement of all that is behind such gifts and gift giving. And no doubt that excitement is a well-placed um, uh, example for us, is it not? 
of what we ought to expect in the coming of Christ, let alone his second coming, and the excitement and the celebration that Christmas entails, and let alone who we are celebrating. And so you think about that. I find it ironic that on our birthdays, we don't have a tradition of giving gifts to other people, but rather we're expecting those gifts, are we not, from others as people celebrate another year of our lives. But as we approach, and while we know that this time of the year was probably not when Christ was born, I find it interesting that we're giving gifts to each other. And these are meant to remind us of Christ, not to distract us from Christ. And so you children can be reminded of such things that while gift giving is great, it points us to a greater reality that we expect this long expected one who is veiled from our eyes currently, but will be revealed one day that we will look on him face to face. And so while we have, some of us have learned the joy of giving and we learn this from the scriptures, I think it's very important as us parents and grandparents have, have learned over the years that there's great joy in seeing a, a young child open a gift. Well, such fervency and such excitement should come upon our countenances when we behold Christ again, when we consider the incarnation, when we consider that this giver of all eternity has become flesh. And so in our text today, we have received much, have we not? As we see here what John writes, that we've received these graces, like a well-wrapped gift God, who is invisible, has made himself known in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we can't see him in our eyes, John is explaining that he did come onto the human scene. He is not a God who hides, as we looked at last week. He is beheld for all that he is. And John's gospel is written to those ends from the beginning to the end. So let's look at verse 14 through 18. I wanna think about it in three different parts. First of all, we wanna see this glory of the incarnate word or the word becoming flesh. Literally, the speech becoming flesh. And then secondly, in verse 15 through 17, we'll look at how John the Baptist, again, was making known this incomparable Christ. And then lastly, we'll close with looking at how the invisible God has been made visible in the person of the Lord Jesus. And while his, he was not in his full glory, it was yet before us that he is revealing who he is and that he came and what he uh, was going to accomplish in his earthly life and ministry. So let's look again here at verse 14 of John chapter 1 some of the greatest words of the New Testament. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You think about all the scriptures of the Old Testament. They were in the form of words. They were proclaiming the greatness and the majesty of God. And now, in one moment in time, the one who uttered those very words and put them into writing through many holy men who wrote them down as they were inspired by the Spirit, 
this God has now come in human flesh. There is no greater distinct doctrine of the Christian faith that separates the Christian faith from any other belief system on the planet. It's an amazing apologetic that our God is not afar off. Our God is not one who hides himself. He is a God who has drawn near to us and as John says here, dwelt among us. So let's unpack this a little bit. What does it mean that he became flesh? Now, we spoke of this in weeks past, so I don't want to uh, go back through it, but by way of review, we've talked about what it means uh, that Christ was both God and man. We talked about the, the theological term, the hypostatic union of Christ. It's not that he was 50% man and 50% God, but that he was all God and all man, as the Gospels say it, that he was the Son of Man and the Son of God. And we realize and have talked about this, that the very gospel hinges on this very truth. Because Jesus, if he was just a man after all, he could not represent God fully. And if he was a mere man, he could not ultimately represent sinful man fully. And so the speech became flesh. He left his eternal abode. The eternal God has become human. An amazing thought to consider. I like how Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, speaking of the humility that he, with which he came. It says this, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Notice again his incarnation had purpose, to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's point here in Philippians 2, is not only that Jesus is the example of humility, but it's humility personified in the very purpose, or person rather, of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, we know that he didn't stay a baby in Bethlehem. His purpose was to go to the cross, to show the world that he was the word of God. And through his words and through his works, he ultimately did this in showing that he was, in fact, the Messiah. But his purpose was to redeem us from our sin and from Satan and from ourselves. The crux of, John point, of John's point here is that Christ came and he dwelt among us. And while we can't put ourselves in the us here, John is speaking of him and his fellow disciples, no doubt we can conclude that he dwelt among those first century folks. He has indeed become man, and we can certainly say that he has dwelt among us. So he is not hidden. He does not hide. The eternal God has made himself known, as we've already said. 
He delights to be known, and he humbled himself, revealed in time and space by who he is and what he is like. Our glorious God has become flesh and revealed his glory, as John says here. The word dwelt among us here can be literally translated that he tabernacled, he dwelt among them. Do you remember the tabernacle of the Old Testament? What was its purpose? It was for a dwelling place of God with his people. And so God at the center of the camp with all the tribes of Israel surrounding it, he dwelled among them. What an awesome truth that is. Perhaps it comes to mind as you read the Old Testament that a flame of fire represented God's presence at night and during the day, a cloud of smoke. They could see the very presence of God upon the tent of meeting. And Moses would meet with him. And it was the awe in the central part of all of their faith and practice at that point. Is Christ the center of our faith and practice? Well, he ought to be. He is our faith, is he not? That this is why we celebrate Christ this time of the year. Christ is the center. It's something to celebrate that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Or is it a old, dusty doctrine to you? I encourage you, our God is not boring. Our God is not dusty. God becoming flesh certainly was a humility for him as he entered this dusty world, but this is a live and living doctrine that Christ became man. He died, he rose again, and today there's a man in heaven who sits at God's right hand and he intercedes on our behalf. That, my friends, is not a boring doctrine. So his welling and his, his, um, his pouring forth, John here, is wanting to proclaim this Christ. And while Christ was temporarily in the flesh uh, and, and dwelling amongst us, his dwelling was not forever. We know he ascended back to the Father. But he is a man today in heaven, representing both God and man. He is our high priest who intercedes for us. But notice here at the end of verse 14, John says that they have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is certainly referring to Christ's life in summation, that through his words and his works, he made known this truth of who he is, being the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, as we have covered already. But specifically, John and the other disciples had this blessing of receiving this special revelation that they were recipients of that they beheld his glory through all of the miracles, through all of the teaching times, through all that Christ did in their lives, not to mention the Mount of Transfiguration where they heard the very voice of God and they saw a glimpse of the glory of Christ to later watch him die and the miraculous events that surrounded his death you think of the earthquake, the temple veil turning in two, let alone the earthquake at his resurrection and the glories of him ascending into the clouds. They beheld these things and they knew that he was not a normal human being. No, they beheld his glory. 
Not to mention that John here is the one who would go on to write the book of Revelation. Many actually think that he wrote the gospel after he wrote the Revelation on the Isle of Patmos. It's interesting to see that even in all of this, John is bringing back the very personable relationship that he had with Christ, the one on whom he rested and um, resided on Jesus's breast, the Last Supper. But John here says, finally, at the end of verse 14, he states that this glory is full of grace and truth. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. What does he mean that he is full of grace and truth? Notice that John is really reiterating this in verse 16 and in verse 17, which we'll get to in a few moments, that this grace is something that is to be defined, that not just them alone have experienced it, but it's in the contrast that we'll see in what was given at Sinai with Moses. But we have received, he says, grace and truth through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is this word grace? Well, simply translated here, it means unmerited favor. Well, what is unmerited favor? In other words, kindness bestowed on one or a recipient of such that is not deserved. In other words, we didn't deserve Christ to come in the flesh. We didn't deserve him to display his glory amongst us all. We don't deserve anything under the law. We are guilty. We are under the wrath of God. We are under and due for judgment. And Christ comes on the scene because of his own great love for us that he would come and lay down his life in our place. The story of the gospel hinges on the nature and the character of God, his holy character, but also his great unending love for his people. Do you see this in the scriptures? If Christmas has become just another dusty holiday for you, brush it off afresh in his word that Christ is to be exalted in, that Christ is on display for all mankind. He is to be proclaimed. He is to be beheld because he is glorious. And this is the one of the attributes that John brings to our attention. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. Unmerited favor has been given to us, but also it's truth. Truth defined here, as John uses it, is objective truth. Reality, if you will. That which is certain, real, or fact. John is not sharing fairy tales. He's saying, I saw him, I touched him, I beheld him. He's glorious, I want you to know about him. And so Christ is displayed not just in grace, but in truth through his earthly ministry. In fact, this is the same point that John uses in chapter 14, verse 6, when he says that Jesus claims he is the way, the truth, and the life. And notice this, we'll come back to this point, that no one comes to the Father except through him. So then here in verse 7, he equates knowing him 
I'm sorry, in, in, in chapter 17, in, in uh, his high priestly prayer, he equates knowing him with knowing the Father, but also here in this text. In other words, one who is aligned with truth would not reject him as God. One who is aligned with truth would see that he is one with the Father. So to claim to know God as the Jews that were living at this time rejected him, and yet they claimed to know God and yet rejected Christ, the only begotten of the Father. Well, Jesus made that known in his earthly ministry and through his gospel that this was heresy, this was blasphemy. It did not align with the truth. So Jesus wants to make very clear through the apostle John of who he is, that he is truth defined that God has come on the scene in human flesh to describe and to proclaim what God is like, his character and his nature. And Jesus, full of grace, but also truth, is not to be misrepresented. Luther comments on this in his, one of his Christmas Day sermons many years ago. And it says, it is unnecessary to look for the armor in this gospel it is all armor and the chief part upon which is founded the article of faith that Christ is true God and true man and that without grace, nature, free will, and works are nothing but deception, sin, error, and heresy in spite of Papists and Pelagians. Just a wonderful statement in his day about the truths of the gospel and the incarnation of the Son of God. And so now that we've considered here the word becoming flesh and what it means that he dwelt among us, let alone them of the first century, let's now look at how he revealed his glory and he is full of grace and truth as we consider in verse 15 and 17, the incomparable Christ. Take a look at verse 15. You'll notice here that it's in parentheses. John the apostle is making the comment here returning to the context of John the Baptist as the one who was the forerunner and bore witness concerning him as the one um, who would uh, proclaim that Christ was coming. Look back to verses six through eight. Um, I don't want you to get these two mixed up about these two Johns because we have John the Apostle and we have John the Baptist. I want you to understand context-wise since we weren't able to study the rest of chapter one together in recent days. Look here with me. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Speaking of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about that light. So John bringing back this same context from verse six through eight here in verse 15, John is seeking to bring this, again, this reality that John the Baptist bore witness concerning who Christ is, that he was in the flesh full of grace and truth. And while Christ came on the scene following John, we know, and we, we know that John doesn't mean that Christ is somehow less important. In fact, he's saying just the opposite, that he ranks before John the Baptist because, in fact, Jesus was before him, eternally before him. And John, the humble forerunner of Christ, let alone John the Apostle here, is clearly shining the spotlight upon Jesus Christ, desiring to underline again who he is and how he's made himself known. But John leads us now to this next thought. 
It says that Christ, again, is, is not merely to be known, but he's to be enjoyed. Look at verse 16. He says, for, again, that's connecting to the previous thought in verse 15, this one who has gone before and, and proclaimed Jesus and the forerunner of Christ, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In other words, we haven't just seen him and beheld him. He literally is a gift that keeps on giving. He has given us grace upon grace, and it flows from this amazing person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not an idea. He's not a philosophy. He's not a mere kind man. He's not a moral man. He's God. And he has come in the flesh showing grace upon grace. John follows this theme through his gospel. If you have time to read it, I would encourage you during the holidays here that John exalts Christ in his gospel. But let me give you two examples of how he has shown grace upon grace in the gospel of John and then one from Ephesians. One that you know very well, John 3, 16 and 17 and 18. You read it all in context. It blesses you more the more that you read. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in the order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only son of God. Did you hear grace upon grace there? That in spite of God's wrath upon us, justly because of our sin, that God became flesh, but it didn't stop there. He went to the cross of Calvary, motivated here, as it says, from the uh, triune God's love for his people to redeem us from our sin, and therefore the Son was sent. Turn over to John chapter 10. Jesus' famous I am statement about being the door. He says this in John chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to only still, still kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Church, we have received grace upon grace. I encourage you this morning if you're kind of in the ho-hums of the holiday season and overwhelmed by all the things that Christmas is not, and you're seeking through all the fog to look afresh on Christ, consider Paul's words from Ephesians chapter one. Consider all that he's given to us in this grace that he's bestowed upon us and his people. Let me just read this to you. If you wanna follow along, you can turn to Ephesians one. But let me just read this and remind us of a fabulous passage that reminds us of the riches that we have in Christ's grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice these graces are from eternity past, even though we're experiencing them in the present. In love, he predestined us for adoption 
to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace to which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It would take sermon after sermon to proclaim the glories of the graces that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could do that all of 2023 and it wouldn't be a bad use of our time. Christ has given us grace upon grace as Paul and John here are saying. So truly, Christ has lavished us with his kindnesses. This ought to boil up in us rejoicing and thanksgiving on our part, but it should overflow in the form of our worship, let alone evangelistic zeal to make Christ known. How is it that we can keep our mouths shut after we've seen such a great salvation? And so now here in verse 17, John explains further this grace and truth, and he contrasts it, notice here, with the law. Look what he says. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So notice here that John is explaining the relationship between law and gospel because they both fit together like hand and glove. It's not a contrast to pit them against each other, but rather in, Rev in Revelation as God laid out, it was his purpose and his timing to accomplish such a thing. And these feed each other. Notice here that we cannot understand grace without the backdrop of the law, and you cannot understand what God requires in the law till you look on the perfect obedience of Christ. So John clearly defines where and how the law came into being. And that through Moses and the human means of recording and delivering the law, that while that happened, the fulfillment of the law came in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only met the law's demands in our place, but continues to live his life through us to the glory of God the Father as he sanctifies us until the day he calls us home. Consider how Jesus taught on this. Matthew chapter five, very familiar passage. I know our young people are studying uh, this in on their um, youth nights, but Jesus said this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in a sense, we see him setting this aside because he's fulfilled it. You consider Ephesians chapter two. Paul says it this way. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. For those of you who are tempted to live on an eternal treadmill of trying to please God, trying to just do better this year, 
to try and not sin. This is for you. Paul says, he is your peace. It's his performance, folks, not yours, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, dividing the wall of hostility. Notice this, abolishing by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body, notice, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, there's reconciliation for you and me because Christ has fulfilled it. Paul goes on, and he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, as Christians, we really do have true peace in a world that's insane. There really is peace on earth, but it comes in the form of a person, not an action. And so Paul closes this thought and he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation, guess who? Of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see how these connect? The one who dwelt amongst his people has become flesh, and in the Spirit, he now dwells amongst us. And we don't have to pray that Jesus would show up on a Sunday morning. We know he's here. Why? Because he's in us. He's living through us. He's actively sanctifying us for his glory and his purposes. This should encourage us and cause great joy and evangelistic zeal in all that he's called us to do. Because we have energy to burn because it's eternal. And so, dear children, while the law was made known through Moses... The word incarnate brings grace and truth here is what John is explaining. Literally, the speech has become flesh once again. What the law did in showing us our sinfulness, Christ shows us this perfect obedience in his mercy and his grace. And this, therefore, shows us the fullness of truth, the reality of our standing before God the reality of our position in Christ for those who come to him in faith and repentance. You can be confident of this. John wants us to be confident in this. And so God, who is the wrathful judge over our sinful rebellion against his name, has loved us so much that he came in the flesh. And this wasn't just for us, we know he did this for his own glory because he is altogether good. He does what is right all the time and he is great in all that he is. But he took upon himself, Jesus, the wrath of God that we in turn might be reconciled and lavished with these spiritual blessings that we've already considered. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6 speaks to this as well. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and are boasting in our hope. This church, again, is amazing news. What a truth to celebrate, not just at this time of the year, but all year long. We have looked on Christ becoming flesh, incarnate word. We have considered the incomparable Christ and the graces received in him. And now let's look at our third and final point, this invisible God who has been made himself known and become visible. Verse 18, look at that with me. Here in John chapter one, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. And you consider the story of the scriptures and how our eternal God has displayed his might in various ways, various miracles, the opening of the Red Sea, how he delivered his people in, uh, his people Israel into the land of Canaan, the supernatural happenings that we read about. Those are great and glorious. They certainly are because they show God and his character and his nature. But he was never seen. In fact, it was at the very heart of Moses' person that he desired to look upon God. And while we all desire that in one, one form or the other, and we long to look to Christ one day face to face, we realize that one has gone before us that desired those very same things. You remember in Exodus chapter 33, we're reminded of that passage that Moses desired to see God. Turn, turn there with me real quick. Exodus chapter 33. And if you remember the context, Moses is going to the tent of meeting. He's desiring to look upon and, 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 and speak with the Lord on a daily basis. And he's judging God's people. And it's, it's a fabulous passage when, we, when we, you consider all that's going on. But this is following the golden calf and all the, the, the mess that that entailed. And we see that God is dwelling amongst them and he's talking with God face to face as God says as a man to man. And there was no other that God spoke to in this way like that. But look down to verse 18. It says, Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Isn't that the cry of all of us? Isn't, isn't that the reason that we go apathetic in the Christian life? We've lost sight of him. Maybe like Peter, we're walking on the waves and we're looking more at the waves than we are on Christ. But Moses says here, show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now we know from the scriptures that 
God doesn't have a body. We know that he reveals himself. But it's very interesting here in this text that the way that he's describing this and the way that Moses writes it down, that this very much could be a, a pre-incarnate showing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while that's a whole other topic and we don't have time to unravel that at this time, the point here, what we came to this passage, is that we long to look upon the face of God. We long to see him for who he is. And he's too glorious to look upon. And to do so, as he says to Moses, would mean certain death. We cannot look upon him. But it doesn't mean that he's not there. It doesn't mean that he doesn't desire to be known. It doesn't mean that he does not desire to show us his glory. Now turn back to John chapter one. Because while John had a similar experience of being able to see Christ in, in these small ways of his glory, John is delivering to us that they have beheld a glimpse of this glory. But notice here as we look at the end of this text that he is saying that this is the one who's making God known at the Father's side. In other words, this isn't merely talking about God the Father, it's talking about God the divine, if you will, that the divine is being made known, how? In the person of Jesus Christ, that he has made him known. There's a sense of intimacy with which Christ had in eternity past and then was restored after his ascension. Again, John reiterates that Christ is God, that he has made God, um, who is invisible, has become visible. He's made him known. So not in all of his glory, as we, we've discussed, but veiled, as it were, in human flesh. And this is John's point. The author of Hebrews says it this way in chapter one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by whom? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We looked at those creation themes in verses one through five last week. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ has made the Father known. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll look at how Paul makes this connection as well and adds to uh, really our understanding here that John is speaking of, that this confidence that we have through Christ towards God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verses, uh, we'll look at verses four through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter three says this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once we had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Don't get lost here. Christ is bringing such glory in contrast to what has already been revealed in the Old Testament. So he continues on. Since we have such a hope, we are not, or we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. You hear Paul's heart here, his evangelistic zeal for his brethren. He wants his fellow Jews to behold Christ for all that he is, and yet they are rejecting him. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, look at this, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Well, what is the point here that I'm trying to make? Again, as John says, we beheld his glory. When God effectually calls a sinner to repentance and they see Christ for all he is, they cannot help but exult in him. They cannot help but see the glory of who he is, the glorious nature and character of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he reveals the Father. He explains who he is. He shows his nature and his character for all of us and it's on display. And John is saying, this is why I am writing these words. They are spirit and they are truth. And so while well, we long to look upon the face of God as Moses desired to. And just as we would love to experience what the apostle John experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. And while John reminds us here that looking on Christ and believing on him and just examining him is not enough, but that we are to trust him and to look to him, we do have this glory that we are beholding before us this morning that Christ became flesh. Is it not precious that God wrote us a love letter and put in it the very revelation of who he is and telling us these marvelous truths? We indeed are beholding his glory. The issue is how does it affect you? This is why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is over all and in all and through all. This is why not just believers in God, is it, that we don't claim to be believers in God in some unidentified way, but that we are Christ followers. We are specifically Christians because 
Christ here in verse 18 has made the Father known. Again, the verb here means to explain or to interpret who God is. This is where we get the word exegesis from, that if you've been here long enough, you realize that we care about what the word of God says. We want to look at it. We want to observe it. We want to understand it. We want to interpret it, but we also desire to apply it because what good is it to study and be a student of the word unless you're a doer of the word? And Christ is also the same way. He's not merely to be examined. He's to be proclaimed. And so Jesus, through his words and his works, reveals who God is. He wants to make him known. Do you remember when Philip says this in the gospel, later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14? Remember what Philip said? He said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Just like Moses, just show us, God. Show us, Jesus, who the Father is. And notice Jesus' reply. You can see this in John 14, 8. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see that relationship there again between the Father and the Son. Christ is making known and glorifying the Father and making him plain to all. He's saying, I am one and the same. I have, have you not known me? Have you not seen me? And isn't this the truth? That the path for many into eternity goes down the aisle of a gospel preaching church? It's not that Christ is not being proclaimed. It's not that the gospel is not going forth. But it's not falling on ears of a repentant heart. It's not falling on the ears of one who has beheld his glory. Because when you see Christ for all he is, it drops you to your knees and you say, whoa, I am a sinful man. Or whoa, I'm a sinful woman. And you will never be the same because at that moment, he changes you. He gives you a heart of flesh and you realize that you need him and his righteousness. And that this true gospel becomes owned by you. He is a personal savior, and yet he is a corporate savior of all of us. And so while God can be seen, and while he is veiled from our eyes until that day we look upon him, Jesus has made known the Father. And so we've examined here in verse 14 through 18, this wonderful incarnate word, this incomparable Christ, this invisible God made visible in the person of the Lord Jesus. And so John's purpose, let alone John the Baptist's purpose, let alone my purpose this morning, is one and one single focus. Are you beholding the Lord Jesus Christ? And I find that probably there's two kinds of people listening to me this morning, a believer and an unbeliever. And for those listening to me here today or online, have you considered this Christ have you considered what his word claims about himself? 
the undeniable evidence of who Christ is. But reason won't lead you to the cross, as I quoted Calvin last week. It's only Christ working in your heart. And so if you find yourself uh, overwhelmed by your sin, look to Christ. If you find yourself overwhelmed with all that has happened in your life and you're considering the greatness of the glory of Christ, grab onto him and forsake your sin and turn to him in repentance and faith. Have you looked to him? What more can be done than has already been explained to you this day? That Christ is available for you and he desires to be made known. Do you have further questions? Ask. There's nothing that delights all of us here than to make Christ known and to encourage you and, uh, and exalt Christ. But for the believer here this morning, I want to point you back to the same truth that we ought to behold our Savior afresh. And my question to you this morning is are you treasuring Christ? Are you making him known as this child has made himself known? Are you treasuring Christ? He is incomparable. Are you rejoicing in him? Are you magnifying him? Are you exulting in him? Or have you let other things come in the way of that shining light and that driving force in your life to make him known? What does that look like for you in the new year? I don't know. That can be applied in a million different ways. But all I have to say, when we look on Christ, the things of earth grow strangely dim, as the old song goes. But it doesn't end there. Christ cannot just be beheld and examined. He must be proclaimed. And so we're going to turn our attention to that next week as we think about what it means to, pro excuse me, to proclaim Christ and bring attention to him and that our lives would be God-glorifying, God-treasuring, God-exalting, gospel-proclaiming lives in the new year. Let's pray. Lord, we've covered so much territory, and yet John, in his gospel, simply wants us to behold Christ. Lord, I pray by your word that you would tear up fellow ground, that no soul in this room would go left unaffected by your word. Lord, we know that you use the foolishness of preaching. Those of us who open our mouths to deliver your word, we're nothing, we're, we're mere mouthpieces. We're not the greatest orators, but you have used foolish things to confound the wise. And Lord, we know by your spirit that you are able to turn over that fallow ground and plant the seed of the gospel in hearts that have not yet looked to you. So we pray that you would do that, that you would bring fruit. But secondly, Lord, I pray for your people, that God, you would forgive us for looking at an old but also important doctrine of the incarnation, and forgive us for not being wowed by it as we once were. Would you be so kind as to cultivate the soil around our hearts that you are so faithful in doing? And that, Lord, you would give us a great exuberance 
this time of the year, but always, Lord, to live for you, to pursue you in holiness, to set our minds on things above, not on the things on this earth. Would you cultivate our hearts to be so overwhelmed with you that, Lord, we would let the things of this earth pass away? Oh God, would you do that? And we would find that an amazing Christmas gift. That you would help us to lose ourselves as John the Baptist said, that you must become greater and we must become lesser. Oh God, would we find ourselves lost in your presence and in your glory. That one day we could come face to face with you without regrets because we beheld your glory and we were forever changed. Give us a fresh look. And as Moses said, show us your glory. Lord, your scriptures are sufficient to do that. And we trust you. Use these words as you will for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.